We've been in the book of Acts, so if you're just joining us this week, we've been in a series since the fall talking about being a countercultural community. A countercultural community. Those that go against the flow of society, who for Christ's sake are willing to stand in the face of opposition and sometimes even flattery. <laughs> well, in our text, we've made a shift now. We're looking at the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas. This is their first missionary journey. It began in chapter 13. Okay, so the church in Antioch, after fasting and praying, said, the Holy Spirit moved and said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them. So they were commissioned and sent out. They began to travel to take this good news of the gospel to different places. Now, they had this plan that when they would arrive in a country, they would find a synagogue, and there they would preach the good news to those that would hear. Well, our story this morning starts in chapter 14. Now, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me there, and if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. How about raising your hand so we can give you one? Amen. If you don't have a Bible, this is a gift. You can take it and continue to use it. But for this morning, join me in chapter 14. That's where we'll continue. In chapter 14, they find themselves now in the country of Iconium. And again as has been the practice, they enter a synagogue and begin to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And the text says that the people responded and listened, both Jews and Gentiles. They were believing. It was going great. They, Paul and Barnabas even stayed even longer to continue ministering. But soon... Some non-believing Jews enter the scene, and they begin to poison the minds of the Gentiles in particular, causing a rift in the country. So now you got a divided place where you got some who believe Paul and Barnabas and others who are siding with these unbelieving Jews. Then it gets really crazy. There's a plot to stone Barnabas and Paul. Well, they learn of the plot, and they flee. Iconium. And from there, they go to Lystra and Derby. Well, that's where our story picks up this morning. In verse 8 of chapter 14, we'll read there together. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, 
because he was the chief speaker. In verse 13, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, what are you, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In the past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Verse 18, even with these words, they, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. And in verse 19, but when Jews from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that enlightens our heart. And great God, I come to you with my sisters and brothers and I ask that you will enlighten our hearts. There are so many suffering from a case of mistaken identity. Will you please, mighty spirit, reveal to us the truth of who we are and whose we are. Oh, I need you. Speak through me now. I am your servant. I love you so much. I pray this in your name, Jesus, and in the power of the Spirit. Amen. I want to offer this, what I call a key biblical truth, uh, the main idea, if you will, that if after my sharing, there's nothing that you remember, I want you to remember this, that as followers of Jesus Christ, we can expect that our identity as ambassadors of the gospel will be misunderstood as well as our actions within our culture. But we must never waver from the truth of who we are and whose we are. Did you catch that? I got it up there, but I'll say it again. As followers of Jesus Christ, we can expect that our identity as ambassadors of the gospel will be misunderstood. Even our actions in this culture. But as a countercultural community, we must never waver from the truth of who we are 
and whose we are. So the question for this morning that begs to be answered, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Solano, who do you think you are? Our brothers in this passage give us, I believe, a vision of knowing who they were. As was custom, they would enter a country, but on this occasion, when they entered Lystra, there was no synagogue. At least there's not recorded a synagogue that they would go into. And that's kind of consistent because as they meet this man who was lame, crippled since birth, he wouldn't have been inside of a synagogue. So there he was. And the text says he's listening to Paul as he's preaching. And Paul could see that he had a, a, a bad situation. He, he had been crippled since birth. He had no strength in his feet. And he had never walked. But he had faith to be made well. Faith to be made well. Now, faith, when applied to healing, is so important. When we see healing faith, it wasn't just a physical healing it was also a spiritual healing. So when Paul looks at the man and says, sin upon your feet, and he obeys and begins to walk, does that remind you of another story? Remind you of another one? Yeah? Well, for those that didn't, you know, that's okay. Uh, in Acts chapter 3, there's another story of a day when Peter and John were going to the temple. And on their way, there was a man at the gate called Beautiful, remember? Who had been crippled since birth. Almost 40 years old, he'd been begging at the gate for people to give him some alms. Well, on that day, he didn't get silver and gold, but he received healing for his body and his soul. He leaped up, starts walking and jumping around, and they go right into the temple to worship. Now, remember in that story, when they came out and the crowds gathered to see what had happened, like, this is the dude that's been sitting and begging, and he's walking, what? You know, he's clinging to Peter and John because, you know, it's the new first thing in walking, so he's still trying to figure it out. <laughs> and then Peter notices that people are staring at them. And Peter says, why are you staring at us? Like we did something. This wasn't our power, but it was the power of the Holy Spirit by the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen. And then he goes into this woo, deep message. Remember that in chapter 3? Well, Paul and Barnabas had a different experience somewhat. I mean, the guy gets up and starts walking. People are amazed to the point where it says they cried out in their native language, the gods have come down to visit us. Ah! But here's the deal. Paul and Barnabas didn't understand what they were saying. So they're like, okay, lots of excitement here. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? All right. And then they notice something's crazy happening when they begin to bring sacrifices to them. The priest. You see, the people, you may be wondering, like, why in the world would they think something like that? Well, you got to understand a little history. All right. I found this out that in that region, there was a, a legend about one day when it's believed that the gods, 
thoughts. Jupiter and his son Mercury came to visit a hillside country, incognito, and they walked among the people, seeking hospitality, but received none, until they met a very humble couple who invited them in, and from their poverty, they showed them hospitality and love. Well, the gods were pleased, and they showered blessings on this couple, but to the others, they burned down the city. Now, that legend was floating around. So imagine their mindset to see these two men give this man the ability to walk. Oh, these must be gods, like before. And we aren't going to mess up this time like my cousin did back in the other village, you know? Oh, no. Hey, the gods are here. Come on, see this. So they're bringing sacrifices, bulls and oxen. And that's when Paul and Barnabas realized what was going on. And the text says they tore their clothes. You see, tearing the garments was an ancient tradition for Jewish people, right? You see it all through Scripture in Old Testament, there was a time when, when David heard of the death of Jonathan and Saul. It says he tore his garments in mourning. It was a sign of mourning and deep loss. Well, for Barnabas and Paul, this was sheer blasphemy. You see, in the Gospels, it records how when Jesus stood before the Jewish council and they were questioning him, the high priest said, are you the Christ, the son of God? And Jesus says, yes, I am. Oh, buddy, the high priest lost it. Oh, ah, do we need any more witness? Ah, and he tears his garments. Oh, blasphemy. He thinks he's God. Well, so for Paul and Barnabas, it was the same effect. We don't think they were God. This must be blasphemy. You're crazy, people. And then Peter lays into them with this amazing sermon. Now, recorded is a very brief summary by Luke. He doesn't give us a full summary like he did, a sermon like he did in verse, in chapter 13. Because here's what I want us to remember. Paul and Barnabas were wise to adapt their approach in sharing the gospel. They didn't change the message. The message was the same as preached before. Jesus, Jesus. But they didn't begin like they did to Jewish crowds, those who knew Yahweh, These were non-believing people, pagans, without God. So rather than giving them Old Testament history, they gave them history of the world. And they went even further back to creation, starting right where they were with the idle things that they were doing. Do you realize what you're doing is vain? Turn from these vain things, these idols that you're trying to worship and trying to worship us as men. No, there's one greater who's left a witness through nature and creation. He's fed you food and clothed you. 
This is the true and living God. We're not gods. We're just messengers of the real God. And with that message, the text says the people began to listen and to stop sacrificing. Reluctantly, slowly, but they did. Until those same Jews that tried to persecute and stone them back in Iconium. They came to Lystra and began to poison the minds of the people. Ah, they're imposters, felons. And the next thing you know, they go from worshiping them to stoning Paul. They grabbed the brother, set him in the middle, take off their garments and begin to throw stones at him. And he's standing there, and I can only imagine as he stood there, maybe his mind went back to the stoning of Stephen. Remember that story? Acts chapter 7? Stephen, young man full of the spirit and wisdom, was preaching the gospel to the Jewish leaders, and it got them so irate that they grabbed him and began to stone him. Now, the text says that they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, fast forward, here he stands, being stoned, just like Stephen. I wonder if he had that in mind. And they thought he was dead. Oh, yeah, we got him. They said, this is, this is a stoning. We've been saving up for him. He got away in Iconia, but not this time. Oh, we got him this time. He was there. They took him and drug him out of the city, laid him out there outside the gate. Disciples that had been following surrounded him, and the text says he popped up. Did you read that? Did I, I, read, this, I read the same thing you did. It said he popped up. Now, I don't... It doesn't say that this was some type of miracle or he got resuscitated, but he got up. That's a, that's a hard brother, you know. <laughs> Paul recounts this when he writes later to the Corinthians in the second letter to them. He says, five times I received lashings, 40 minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, and one time I was stoned. He also said about, you remember this in 2 Corinthians 6 about, I've been knocked down, but not destroyed. What about us as believers, huh? You ever been knocked down, but not knocked out? An amazing resilience. He gets up that evening and goes back into the city. The next morning, the brother gets up and then walks to Derby, 60 miles from Lystra. He just got stoned, bloody, beaten. He goes 60 miles. There's this brother that wrote, he said, once I saw the track of a bloody hair in the snow. That's the Apostle Paul across Europe. Resilience, 
courage. But I believe as this brother's preached, there's something to be learned. We should learn from Paul's flexibility. We have no liberty to edit the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ, nor is there ever a need to do so. But we have to begin where people are, to find a point of contact with them. And with our secular world today, this might be what constitutes authentic humanness, the universal quest for transcendence, the hunger for love and community, the search for freedom and justice, and the longing for personal significance. Wherever we begin with them, we must end with Jesus Christ, who is himself the good news and the one who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. You know, you have to think about, that's pretty, pretty amazing, right? This fickled crowd who one day they want to worship Barnabas and Paul like they were gods, and then the next time, they stone Paul like he's a felon. But in all of that, he was unmoved. Reminds me of Jesus. Luke talks about him too. How on one day he rides triumphantly and the crowds are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the same crowd in Jerusalem is calling for his crucifixion. So you wonder, like, okay, what's up with this dude? I mean, he, he gets stoned, he walks away, and, you know, chin like flint. Got superpowers or something, you know? But obviously not, because he went ballistic when they tried to say he was a god. I'm human, just like you. But what's the deal? I mean, when we read these stories, especially in Acts, all these, what, Pastor Andrew says these wild stories of miracles and healings. And for me, it's like, I'm just that one. So what? What does that have to do with me? I mean, I'm not trying to get stoned. Um, I haven't been gifted with healing, as far as I know. So I'm just wondering, what does it got to do with me? Just a great story? Oh, maybe this is that, 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 that debate about descriptive or prescriptive, you know? This is just describing what happened, but it's not prescribed for us. Easy to read it that way. But I would say to you, my sisters and brothers, that that's not what I've come to believe. I believe firmly that Paul, Barnabas, Stephen, Peter were human beings just like us. But what they had, what I long for, what I share with you is they had a security in who they were and whose they were. That's what held these brothers and sisters in the times of opposition. 
when a society and a culture would offer flattery, but then opposition, they didn't waver. They didn't allow what others thought to determine who they were. What about us? Do we know who we are? This, to me, is a beautiful illustration of identity. It's the age-old question. Who am I? Who am I? But I'm here to tell you, here's the good news. You don't have to go searching for your identity. It's been already given to you. Did you hear me? It's been given to you already. In Genesis chapter 1, 27 and 28, we hear stated what is our foundation and the root of our identity. And God said, let us make man in our image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I'm telling you, the source of our identity lies in being image bearers of God. But I'm first in line to admit that I had an identity crisis. This case of mistaken identity. Because I found that there what unfortunately happens to, be, happens to be these substitute identities. Substitute identities. I got a slide for those. I want you to see a, just a few of them. These become so often idols for us that shape us, that influence us, that we use as substitute identities, family, friends, culture, ethnicity, sexuality, work, hobbies, sports, activism. The list goes on and on. Pick yours. What have you used to substitute who you really are with God? Or do you even know who you are? Oh, this is age old. It happened in the garden. That's what got Adam and Eve. The enemy creeps up on Eve, right? Hey, babe, what's up? Listen, did God not say, you know, oh, come on, he's just playing you. He knows if you do this, you'll be like God. Come on, dude. We were already made in his likeness. And it got the plan in her head. And she drank the Kool-Aid or ate the fruit, you know. Searching for significance and purpose because you feel like something's missing in you and you choose a substitute. And the list goes on and on. For me, bam, culture, ethnicity. That was my idol. I had a cultural idolatry issue. That's what it was. My, I was oh, I'm a black man of African-American heritage. That's me. My world. My purpose was an idol. Anything that we place in the place of God's image becomes an idol, a vain thing, just like the people in Lystra. They had all these vain things that they were worshiping. And the call to them is the same call to us. Turn from these vain things. Now, in chapter 3 of Genesis, there's, there's a talk about the fall. So we have to talk about the fall as we talk about 
being image bearers. This image has been scarred, marred, distorted, which leads us on these quests to feel ourselves, to have purpose. But we've, we've replaced our true essence being who we are, and we flipped it with ethics, how we live. We're basing now essence based on feelings and experience. This is one of my uh, sweet points that I love to share because of where I've been, what I've been through, what I've seen, and what I still hear from people searching for an answer about their identity. So I had to meditate this week on some I am statements. I got a list of those too. I am who I am in Christ. I am created in the image of God. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I'm adopted. I'm a child of God. I'm a beloved daughter and a son. I'm a chosen heir. I'm a sister or a brother in Christ. I am an ambassador of Christ. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? I'm so thankful that each week at Solano, we take time to slow down and declare, reminding ourselves of who we are and whose we are. The one who purchased our salvation, the one whose blood has created a new family. I know you got another family. I got, you got the family of origin thing, you got the culture of origin, and that's so easy to get swept in as your identity. I get it. I get it. But I had to be reminded, and I'm glad we do it each week. We have this thing called communion. I'm going to ask my brother Peter to come, and he's going to open the table for us as we celebrate again our identity. <laughs> 